Oh boy, here we go. It's another Overnight Scape Central. 80s movies is the topic this week, and I am so happy you're here to share the fun and joy as we uh, unpack and uh, foon and do whatever we do together and listen to some great hosts. Uh, this week we're going to hear from Doc Slees, Chad Bowers, and Frank Edward Norris, sort of a regular cast we're developing, and you should join us if you've joined us in the past or if you've never done anything like this in your life. You should go for it and uh, keep this show going because I'm still, I, I feel there could be more, and maybe I'm being selfish and greedy here as uh, Brett the Appreciator, but I it, it just a new idea uh, to bounce off of might be more interesting. I don't know, but uh, we do. I mean, we've Doc Slees, an expert, uh, Chad Bowers, not only an expert, but a truly funny and absurdist kind of a guy, and the legendary, the Gene Shepherd of our era, Frank Edward Nora, bringing their ideas together. And as I said, it's 80s movies, as you know, because you saw, well, maybe you didn't, but before you tuned in, perhaps you did. In any case, whether you know it or not, you're in for a real treat, Jim, or Jimette, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Let's just get right to the business of things. 80s movies. What an era uh, that, for me, probably the era that has stuck with me more if I had to pick an era where I went to the movies and was actually contemporarily going to the movie theater and enjoying maybe a little in the 70s, but I don't think I was as critical back then. In the 80s, I started experiencing foreign films, and that's a whole planet that changed my Hollywood ideals. And uh, in the 80s, I really learned to appreciate uh, the pre-code and silent films because VHS uh, became prevalent, and especially in my life, I was trading videos all over the world and watching these obscure movies from the 30s and late 20s. I mean, there was a time when 1929 films, I had it in my head that that was some sort of peak when sound first came in before the code was established that censored films for, God, another 30 years. But all that aside, that has nothing to do with 80s films, per se. So uh, to get us in the mood, let's get the ball rolling with Doc Slees. Decades are, of course, an arbitrary division of time, um, a construct imposed upon time by man. So... Unfortunately, movies don't conform to, you know, they'll all take a particular form or look in a particular decade. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, um, you can usually, when you look at a film, when you're watching it, there are all sorts of factors that can help you date it to, at the very least, a particular decade. You could say it's made in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. Um, um, or the 40s, they have a, a look, a style, 
uh, in which they're filmed. I mean, the 30s and 40s, particularly big release, you know, the biggest films, they had a studio look according to which studio had made them. They all had their own look. Um, even their B-movies, you could because you'd recognise the sets were reused often. They had standing sets, most of the major studios, and the B-movie output was filmed on those standing sets, which had often been constructed for much more expensive films, and they were often leased out as well, the sets, for smaller companies to shoot B-movies on. I mean, Universal used to... Universal Studios used to... Um, lease out their, uh, their their sets for other people to film on um yeah smaller companies that didn't have their own studio prc producers releasing company being one in particular used to use universal facilities and again you can recognize the sets uh, quite a few prc films made in the 40s as actually being sets you'd seen before in a universal production but yeah, there's this certain looks you get in films, the subject matter, um, there's just the style, um, because it has a contemporary setting, you can often tell from the um, from the style of clothing, hairstyles, dialogue, you know, sort of idioms being used and slang being used. There can even be differences between, I mean, but when we moved from the 60s to 70s, there was, you, you started to see it in the late 60s, there was a distinct change in the way films looked. The glossiness that you tended to get, even in the 60s with bigger budget, even lower budget productions, had a certain, it's the way the colours were developed, the way they were filmed, the way they were lit. By the early 70s, is a very decisive change. So it started in the 60s. And um, films didn't have... They had a grittier look. They, um, the lighting on them was quite different. looked far more natural. The colours looked more natural. I'm told that in part that was down to a change in the, in the type of film stock that was used. It gave it that, that different look. Um, so new, new film stock became common and came commonly into use across all the studios and smaller independent producers and so on started using different film stock which was well obviously because the people who made film stock there's only a limited number of people who do <laughs> were supplying this new type of stock basically it needed for outdoor shooting in particular it needed less lighting which gave that more naturalistic look um, you'll see it a lot on TV productions as well from that era uh, that was shot on film. They also use that particular film stock. So just as um, these technical changes affected the look and feel of films in the 70s, although it started in the 60s, 80s films <laughs> have their roots. I, I, you might get there in the end. 80s movies had their roots in 70s movies and what was happening in the 70s and one of the big things was of course they 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 picked up on something that happened in the latter half of the 70s of the return to screens of the big 
hugely budgeted blockbuster. I mean, they've been intermittently around in the early 70s, whatever. But in the late 70s, second half of the 70s, you had that whole cycle of films that became extremely popular and most importantly made a lot of money for Hollywood studios. Things like Spielberg's Jaws, Star Wars. Jaws was 76, Star Wars 77, 78, Close Encounters 79. Films of this ilk that had huge budgets, um, studio backing, and basically as the 80s, as we moved into the 80s, more and more studios started putting out these big budget sprawling epics because that's what audiences wanted to watch. Because once again, it provided a spectacle that you couldn't get on your TV screen. Because don't forget, back in, this, back in the 80s, we still had those big old tubes. There's a limit on the size of them. You know, even the biggest ones didn't give you a picture like you got in the cinema. It was so we didn't have surround sound, home surround sound, you know, sound bars that we do now that reproduce a sound quality similar to that which we get in the cinema. Yeah, we didn't have HD on our tellies, you know, none of that. They weren't digital, they weren't LED. So in the 80s, it helped keep cinema going kept the movies going this this new form of big budget blockbuster the other thing that made them possible of course was big leaps forward in technology particularly to do with special effects that was the big one um, for a lot to enable a lot of these movies to be made I mean, let's face it we've had movies space operas before you know i've seen flash gordon the original you know cinema serial with all those little spaceships on bits of wire and smoke and fireworks stuck in them to make like smoke and flame coming out the back and whatever because that was that was the state of special effects back then and okay they were low budget um but you get to the late 70s when george lucas is making star wars and this whole new uh, technologies coming in computer controlled cameras and so on that enable that to be done on a bigger scale more realistically looks far more realistic than, than those old flash gordon serials ever did um i mean the closest thing before that you used to get um you ever watch uh, 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 well one is jerry anderson tv series like thunderbirds where it's all done with miniatures um, and whilst on the puppets you could see the strings sometimes uh, it was more difficult to see them on, on, on the um, spaceships and aircraft and all the other vehicles that his people used to create for those for those series he used to do it in a warehouse as a converted warehouse in Slough which isn't a million which is between here and London it's a horrible horrible in uh, sort of industrial it's not industrial no but it's, it's you know what i mean it's all full of where full of warehouse <laughs> so that, that sort of thing it's not a nice town 
But that, that is what, well, what's his name? Um, um, the late poet laureate um, once, whose name now eludes me, it's going to an, John Betjeman. So John Betjeman once wrote the poem with, with the line in it, cut, uh, it was written during the war, it said, come friendly bombs, fall on slough. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, gives you some idea of the regard with which Slough has always been held. But yeah, it's done with miniatures. Um, but equally, if you look at Japanese films, science fiction films in the 60s, there's some of those where they made some space operas, which are fantastic to watch, using miniatures, miniature spaceships and space battles. Um, but of course, because they're all suspended on wires and whatever, um, the movements aren't as fluid. It's all rather regimented as these fleets of spaceships fly towards each other. You see similar things, but not up to quite the same standard in some Italian um, space opera films of the late 60s and early 70s. Not quite sophisticated, but yeah. But the big leap forward for Star Wars with the computer-controlled cameras where you could make sure the movements of all the spaceships could be coordinated as, as they were individually filmed against the blue backdrop and they could all be matted together in the matting process. Um, still not as sophisticated nowadays as using CGI, although I still don't think CGI, no matter how much it advances, usually you can tell it's CGI, you know. <laughs> it's It's just... Not as good to me as the old ways of stop motion and, and um, travelling mats and all that business. But getting back to the point, <laughs> that enabled this whole new generation of all action blockbusters um, because they finally had the technology to provide the effects, the level of, of effects work they needed to make them look realistic, to make them look convincing to audiences. Indiana Jones, which in itself inspired God knows how many imitators. Um, I, I remember when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out and uh, what a, a huge thing that was. So we had, had the, the, this explosion of big budget films. The interesting thing was in the 80s as well. People kept on making lower budgeted films. But there was something, something clearly happened. I don't think it was an influx of money, but somehow the production value started looking better, even on incredibly cheap, cheaply made films. They had a, yeah, just a, a, a better look to them, a more expensive look to the, them, even though they're incredibly cheaply made. And some of the advances in effects work sort of began to filter down to them. Maybe some of the more traditional effects guys who'd worked on big budget pictures. Now the only work they could get was working on lower budget ones. I don't know. Because yeah, all this new, more technical, technological effects work had come in. Who knows? But, say, low-budget filmmaking carried on, and that's really the sort of films which usually interest me more. 
exploitation films. And indeed, Italian exploitation carried on into the 80s. Although interestingly, it too picked up because the Italian exploitation films always take their cue from what's popular in English language films. And they seek to imitate and mutate them into something distinctively Italian. Um, although they have genres which they which are very uniquely Italian themselves. I mean, the cannibal genre, um, which you can trace certainly back to the early 70s at least, is seem, appears to be uniquely Italian. Sorry about that. That's the sound of my bloody phone for some reason sending me a message at this bloody hour of the morning. And it's no good British Gas telling me my statement stroke bill is now ready because I still haven't given you my meter readings, which I still have time to give you according to your deadline. Thank you very much. Sorry, off topic. Uh, Getting back to the point, yes, the other unique Italian, more or less unique, it was the Giallo movie. They're sort of twisted thrillers they made, which are very, I mean, trust me, there are German Giallos. There are Spanish-made Giallo movies, but they're never as good as the, as the Italian original. Now, an interesting thing of the, they basically reached their peak in the mid-70s. It was the dominant exploitation genre for a while in the 70s. I think 1972 was the peak year for production um, of Jalos, but they carried on. Um, but they began to peter out, partly because the, 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 the doyen of Jalo directors, or the, the the man most associated with Dario Argento went seriously off the boil as a director. And not all, but a lot of his 80s giallos are pretty bloody disappointing. And um, he just seemed to run out of steam completely. It didn't help his, in order to get a bigger, audi bigger audience for films, is his decision to film in English instead of Italian. I don't think really helped particularly. An interesting thing happened. The Giallo began to mutate under the influence of American slasher movies, which is, of course, a genre that dates back to the late 70s. Oh, I see. even earlier you can find proto-slashes, but really it was with uh, 1978's Halloween, the, the um, really codified, if you like, the slasher genre. Virtually all slashes subsequently were modelled on Halloween. Um, most notably the rival Friday the 13th series of course which clearly took its cue from Halloween and then a lot of other films modelled themselves on that in turn but you get these curious hybrids in the 80s of um, Italian giallo slasher movies films like Pieces um, which was actually partly filmed in the US in Boston and it's it vacillates between wanting to be a giallo where everything, all the motivation of the killer is down down to deep, dark secrets in his past and just wanting to be a slasher movie with people getting carved up with chainsaws. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, 
that's that's a cur curious one. And uh, what was the other one? There's another one set in a theatre. Gone out of my head now. Directed by Michael Suave. Um, which again is much more like a slasher than a giallo. Um, I'm going to remember the title. Maybe. But uh, yeah. This is a strange mutation into these forms. Cannibal movies kept on. Mad Max then became a big thing. Uh, Mad Max and Escape to New York became two of the big influences on Italian exploitation films in the early 80s. Uh, you have these post-apocalyptic films with increasingly sort of American actors starring in them who either were sort of B-movie actors anyway. Fred Williamson, star of a million black exploitation films, was in loads of them and you know people like that and actors who are sort of had once been well known on american tv or maybe in 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 sort of playing the second lead in feature films <laughs> yeah that's the kind of people suddenly found themselves working in italy on these films these post-apocalyptic films were say packed full of ham actors giving incredibly over-the-top performances <laughs> The genre, though, that the Italians found difficult to imitate in Italian exploitation were the science fiction film Star Wars. There are um, Italian Star Wars knockoffs, most notably the absolutely insane Star Crash featuring David Hasselhoff, who once claimed that was the worst film he'd ever appeared in. And, and that's quite something coming from, from the Hoff, who... If one looks at his filmography, uh, one has to say, you know, that's a very bold assertion on his part. That was the worst thing he has ever in. So, and the humanoid was the other one that was a notable Star Wars knockoff. But the big problem for Italian exploitation films and attempting to imitate things like Star Wars was they required a level of special effects technology and therefore budget that they just didn't have. I mean, Star Crash is wonderfully quaint with a lot of its Flash Gordon-style spaceship effects and things, model work it has, and it is very, very quaint in that way and enjoyable. It, it tries to turn it into a virtual virtue. Um, yeah. But... Um, so that was difficult for me. See, it's not like the post-apocalyptic science fiction film. All you need is some derelict land. I mean, they're always... Occasionally they're filmed in the US, but um, it always looked like they found some some um, deserted factory outside Milan or a building site near Rome to, f to film these post-apocalyptic sequences in. Um, you know, it, it's... It's quaintly Italian. Guys wander around wearing exotic-looking costumes, you know, fish bowls on their heads for some reason. And, you know, <laughs> the New Barbarians is is a particular favourite of that genre. It turns up under various titles all over the place. Has Fred Williamson in it, playing a badass, because that's what Fred Williamson does still. He plays a badass. And... Um, <laughs> That's more of a Mad Max ripoff than anything, but unfortunately, 
all the cars move so slowly in it <laughs> because of these custom-made electric vehicles that the villains have and unfortunately they just run really slowly so the car chases seem ridiculous you know because the heroes tooling around in a first generation firebird with a uh, transparent dome on the roof for some reason you know and some pipes stuck on it you know uh, <laughs> you know i always wanted a pontiac firebird never owned one had a camaro never a firebird but um camaro is almost the same as a firebird but um they're both General Motors products using the same body shell, the F series body, as that's known. There you go. A little bit of information, so you learn something. A little bit of automotive related info there. They're both F bodies. Because that's how General Motors coded the, the body styles for their cars, all done with a letter. And uh, yeah, and different marks of General Motors would style particular bodies standard bodies in a particular way to make them distinctive to that mark usually it had to do with different front and back ends being put on in different interiors different drivetrains anyway i digress but yes the new barbarians also fascinating because it's clearly shot in italy because apart from that firebird and those specially made cars it's <laughs> a lot of the vehicles you see in it you know um, they don't look exactly, I mean, to, to, to by European eyes, you know, those square cut Fiat's and even a Rover P5 at one point, <laughs> you know, not the sort of cars one expects to see a sort of customised yeah, dragsters being used by leather clad dudes who, uh, who run around after the apocalypse. Yeah. According according to, to the new barbarians, of course, the apocalypse happened in, was it 2019? I must have slept through it, but there you go. Uh, because, you know, the, the, I guess pretty wild here in Crapchester, but, you know, I've never yet seen guys driving around in Pontiac Firebirds with transparent domes on the roofs or seeing Fred Williamson tooling about in black leather or anything, you know. Uh, But the 80s were the, were the decade of the demise of the of the Italian exploitation in in the form we became familiar with in the 60s and 70s. Um, they still made them, but they made fewer of them. And I think part of that problem was driven by the fact that even as the decade went on, people expected a level of technical competence, special effects and so on in even B-movies that they simply couldn't afford to provide. Plus, the other thing that happened in the 80s was the beginning of the home cinema revolution, home viewing. Video cassettes arrived and video players became affordable. And obviously at first, studios exploited their existing catalogues of films but but video dealers obviously had a huge appetite for titles to sell to their customers and so of course the director video mo um, movie 
production cycle started up. People started making these things deliberately to go straight to video. They were shot on videotape, which cut costs often um, drastically, which cut costs. You had less marketing. You didn't have to hire theatres. You didn't have to get a theatrical distributor. All that cut costs in getting these video cassettes out there and out to audiences. And that was the other things which did for Italian exploitation films. Guys, people anywhere could start shooting um, movies cheaper now on video. And people were more forgiving to direct video films for their shoddiness. Because, you know, it's shot direct on video. You can sort of forgive it shoddiness. <laughs> it's obviously made on a low budget. But if you're paying to see it at the cinema, you just somehow expect it to have a higher quality. Especially the amount of money one has to pay now at the cinema. I mean, every time, the rare times now... I go to one of my local cinemas. I'm always just left, you know, aghast. You know, I mean, for God's sake, as I, I have pointed out to them, I'm not buying this seat permanently. I'm just renting it for a couple of hours to watch a movie. You know, uh, not quite sure why I'm being charged this vast amount of money. But yeah, that was the beginning of the revolution, the 80s, when all these cheap, as movies started going out direct to video and also because they were desperate to get content out there it's rather like today with all those streaming companies wanting to put out original content a lot of it is utter crap they get stuff supplied but i mean these days quite frankly some of it is basically glorified home movies being bloody put out there um I kid you not, you know, I'm not exaggerating. But, um, yeah, it meant they dredged up all manner of stuff that had it, fallen through the cracks, had never been distributed properly. And, of course, at first in the UK, um, videos for home consumption didn't have to carry a certificate. They did not have to be passed by the British Board of Film Censors. Sorry, British for what are they called now? They're not the British Board of Film Censors. Yeah, the British Board of Film Certification, as they're now known. But yeah, you didn't have to have a certificate on them, which led to all manner of films, <laughs> gross <laughs> movies, being really horror movies being released, including a lot of old uh, Italian exploitation classics, cannibal films being released <laughs> on video in this country, some of them direct to video because they've never had cinema releases here. And of course, you know, we had the moral panic of the so-called video nasties. Oh, what somebody think of the children? Because small children could accidentally stick that video cassette into the player and watch it and be horrified by incredibly unconvincing <laughs> gore of Italian gore effects from circa 1974. You know, Excuse me, what happened to parental responsibility here, anyway? Uh, the thing is, a lot of those films that were effectively banned under the, um, in the video nasty nonsense, 
in this country, moral panic. Um, because to get a certificate, they had to be cut. And some distributors refused to cut them because it would have cut the film to ribbons, the proposed cuts. Um, in some cases, the BBFC just outright refused them a certificate for, for home video distribution. Um, most of them are subsequently being released uncut or with absolute minimal cuts. And I have seen a scare, well, it's an unhealthy number, I'd say, an unhealthy number of extremely bad films from that era. Um, some were actually produced in the 80s for direct-to-video release. Some were earlier films that were getting their video debut. And, um, yeah, Jesus. Um, you, you look at them and think, what is what was the fuss about, really? You know, there you go. But yeah, that was the story of eighties films. It started with a with a roar with all these blockbusters and you know cinemas saved by the arrival of big blockbuster films. And then of course the home video revolution came in and changed the way we perceived films and film distribution, the way in which we consumed media. And uh, as the eighties ended, probably on a less certain note for a lot of studios. For the big studio pictures, although they carried on turning up big blockbusters, but they weren't sure of themselves. Increasingly, um, video releases became more important. The idea, the the time you saw that happening in the eighties, the time between a film being released to cinemas and getting released to video got shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, as did the time between it being released to cinemas and the time between it and getting its first television showing got shorter and shorter. I mean, I remember a time in the 70s, the early 70s, when I was a kid, um, it was so unusual for a film released in the cinemas to appear on, on television any earlier than, I don't know, three or four years after its release, often longer with, with the biggest titles. Um, then it came down by the 80s. It was sometimes 18 months a year, barely, for UK TV debuts. And, of course, before they came to TV, they'd have a, have a video debut. Which you know. Film release cycles in cinemas as the 80s went on became shorter and shorter. I mean, I remember, again, when I was a kid, films would knock about on cinema releases for years after their initial release. They keep on turning up. They turn up as support features. They turn up on double bills. Um, they just keep on turning up years after their release, before they ever went onto television. But there you go. Um, that's some thoughts on um, on eighties films. Uh, with that, I will say back to you, P. Hugh. Great, Doc. Yeah, the the v, the whole advent of VHS really did alter. The entire way films looked and the way they were, I mean, Eastman color and Technicolor. And these are things that, to be honest, I didn't notice as they were happening. But now in retrospect, at my leisure, I can realize that this is what occurred. It's it's really strange that way. Um, I just, I was so, well, having come up watching films 
at low resolution on a TV screen. Uh, it was like watching things without your glasses and you just got used to this low picture quality. And when I went to the cinema, it really, I, I guess for whatever lack of aesthetics that I had, until it was pointed out to me, I don't think it made the least difference in the world. Um, I would go see a James Bond movie or a Woody Allen movie, and the aesthetics of it, I mean, okay, so I just was not paying attention to that quality and the clarity and cinematography. Um, no, that really. I did sort of notice uh, going to silent films, I had the opportunity to see a number of films in the late 70s and early 80s on nitrate stock. And yeah, I did notice a richer set of tones, but it didn't matter, uh, especially, I mean, as VHS came in, uh, just being able to see some of these movies at all, because I lived in a small town, and anything that was even slightly offbeat was never, ever going to be seen on a big screen without a pilgrimage into Manhattan, which until the mid-80s was just not something that was part of my life. And even then, if I went into Manhattan or New York City, there were so many other things to do in my head than going to a movie theater to watch something. And of course, there was that the films I would see, like the Russ Myers films that I went into New York. And, and this isn't even 80s films. Uh, Russ Myers' heyday was before that. But some of these prints that I would see were just so poorly preserved. Because, yeah, I had a taste, like Doc does especially back then, for these schlocky. I mean, when I first saw Freaks on a big screen, which was in the 80s, uh, actually probably the mid-80s, whenever they re-released it, it was not the best print in the world, but I was just thrilled to death to see this on a big score, see it at all, because Freaks, of course, was not something that was shown on broadcast television. I think it was pretty much shunned, if not banned outright, for its content. And uh, I don't know, anything that salacious would be cut to pieces. The horror movies that I, I mean, the grossest thing that I ever saw was the arm hanging out of the window at the beginning of the Cape Canaveral monsters, things like that. You didn't gore blood? No, no, you weren't that. You had to go to a movie theater and see this film that had been shown in a million theaters and like a grindhouse was just totally destroyed. But it was the thrill of seeing it as far as that goes. And an Italian horror film for me, I mean, perhaps in the UK they were available. I think you had to be very special or you were going to watch it on a VHS tape. And that was, to me, a lot of the wonders of the 80s. Getting to see films, like, like he said, at home and God, what they've done to theaters now. Uh, I have not been to one of these super modern comfort 
where they serve you a fine dinner or whatever and you pay some like a motel room to sit for a few hours and watch a movie that's just not part of my life and uh, this you you've painted a very cool picture of all the transitions that began in the 1980s and that is something that needs recorded and uh, the we can boy I am so lucky to have this going on here. Anyways, let us move along because I am certain that, you know, we have three hosts with very different aesthetics this week, and Chad Bowers is certainly going to give us, well, I I don't know what to expect anymore, so uh, let's batten down the hatches, peel back our ears, and listen together to Chad from the incredible True Facts of Space. Purple pretty in pink the prince's bride coming to america 16 candles it's the time of your life that may last a lifetime from the man who brought you mr mom and national lampoon's vacation samantha baker is turning 16 and she's fallen in love for the first time. It should be the best time of her life. But her family is so preoccupied with her sister's wedding, they totally forgot her birthday. The boy she loves doesn't even know she exists. Class clown, he's putting the moves on her. And she still has to go to school, ride the bus, and put up with an annoying younger brother. A hopelessly vain older sister, four delirious grandparents, and a whacked-out foreign exchange student. Well, hang in there, Samantha. The day's not over yet. You may still get your wish. Labyrinth. Jim Henson, George Lucas, David Bowie take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. It's where everything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Jennifer Connelly, Jim Henson, the Goblin King, a Steven Spielberg film, The Color Purple. It's all about life. It's about love. It's about us. It's also about Whoopi Goldberg taking a six-gallon pee-pee in a hole. Indiana Jones, the new hero from the creator of Jaws and Star Wars. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison Ford. 1981. Steel Magnolias. 1989. Dolly Parton, Julia Roberts, Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, and Daryl Hannah. Friday the 13th. They were warned. They are doomed. And on Friday the 13th, nothing will save them. A 24-hour nightmare of terror. He taught him the secret to karate lies in the mind and heart. Not in the hands, 
the Karate Kid. Robin Williams has their attention, and he is their inspiration. He made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. When Harry met Sally. A comedy by Bob Reiner, Billy Crystal, and Meg Ryan. Lean on Me. 1989, Morgan Freeman. Tom Hanks stars in Risky Business. There's a time for playing it safe and a time for risky business. They only met once, but it changed their lives forever. They were five total strangers, nothing in common. Meeting for the first time, a brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. Before the day was over, they broke the rules, bared their souls, and touched each other in a way they never dreamed possible. A room with a view. E.T., the extraterrestrial, in his adventure on Earth. Al Capone ruled Chicago with absolute power. No one could touch him. No one would stop him. Until Elliot Ness and a small band of misfits. Gregory's Girl The Decline of Western Civilization Miracle Mile, 1988 After a meet-cute at the La Brea Tar Pits Scarface Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 1980 Airplane, 1980 The Vanishing The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover Amadeus, the brother from another planet, Withnal and I, Richard E. Grant, Ralph Brown, Paul McGann, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Midnight Run, The Little Mermaid, Hollywood Shuffle, River's Edge, Sweetie, Full Metal Jacket, Police Story, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Heathers, Vagabond, Drugstore Cowboy, Ghostbusters, 48 Hours, Poseidon the Killer, Caddyshack. What is slower than a speeding bullet and able to hit tall buildings at a single bound? Airplane, Robert De Niro, Raging Bull. They'll never get caught. They're on a mission from God. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, the Blues Brothers. I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am a man, the Elephant Man. The Star Wars saga continues. The Empire Strikes Back. A masterpiece of modern horror. The Shining. From the director of Animal House. A different kind of animal. An American werewolf in London. The monster movie. Where dreamers can be winners. Atlantic City. 
This is a story of two men who run. Not to run, but to prove something to the world. They will sacrifice anything to achieve their goals, except their honor. Chariots of Fire New York City is a walled maximum security prison. Breakout is impossible. Breaking in is insane. Escape from New York. Keep an eye out for the funniest movie about growing up ever made. Porkies, you'll be glad you came. The most ferociously original horror movie film of the year. Stephen King, author of Carrie and the Shining. The Evil Dead. Man has made his match. Now it's his problem. Harrison Ford, Blade Runner. The Masters of Terror in the Macabre. George A. Romero, Stephen King. Creep Show. The most fun you'll ever have being scared. At Ridgemont High, only the rules get busted. They're here. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. The ultimate in alien terror. The Thing. A world inside the computer where man has never been. Tron. Every summer, Chevy Chase takes his family on a little trip. This year, he went too far. National Lampoon's vacation. How much love, sex, fun, and friendship can a person take? The story of eight old friends searching for something they lost and finding that all they needed was each other. The Big Chill. In a world this cold, you need your friends to keep you If Nancy doesn't wake up screaming, she won't wake up at all. A Nightmare on Elm Street. The man, the music, the madness, the murder, the motion picture. Amadeus. Everything you've heard is true. Cute. Clever, mischievous, intelligent, dangerous. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. There are some very good reasons to be afraid of the dark. Fright Night. If you love being scared, it'll be the night of your life. 1962. JFK was in the White House. John Glenn was in orbit. Cadillacs had fins. Beehives were in. And girls really knew how to tease. Hairspray. You see them on the street. You watch them on TV. You might even vote for one this fall. You think they're people just like you. You're wrong. Dead wrong. They live. Heathers. The film's sword has many edges, all of them super sharp. Heathers is a smart black comedy about high school, vastly inventive and entertaining at nearly every step of the way. 
A 10. Beautiful. Brilliant satire. A remarkable film. It's the hottest day of the summer. You can do nothing. You can do something. Or you can do the right thing. Somewhere under the sea and beyond your imagination is an adventure in fantasy. The Little Mermaid. What is slower than a speeding bullet and able to hit tall buildings at a single bound? Airplane. Robert De Niro. Raging Bull. They'll never get caught. They're on a mission from God. John Belushi. Dan Aykroyd. The Blues Brothers. I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am a man. The Elephant Man. The Star Wars saga continues. The Empire Strikes Back. A masterpiece of modern horror. The Shining. From the director of Animal House. A different kind of animal. An American Werewolf in London. The Monster Movie. Where dreamers can be winners. Atlantic City. This is a story of two men who run. Not to run, but to prove something to the world. They will sacrifice anything to achieve their goals. Accept their honor. Chariots of Fire. New York City is a walled maximum security prison. Breakout is impossible. Breaking in is insane. Escape from New York. Keep an eye out for the funniest movie about growing up ever made. Porky's. You'll be glad you came. The most ferociously original horror movie film of the year. Stephen King, author of Carrie and the Shining. The Evil Dead. Man has made his match. Now it's his problem. Harrison Ford, Blade Runner. The Masters of Terror in the Macabre. George A. Romero, Stephen King. Creep Show. The most fun you'll ever have being scared. At Ridgemont High. Only the rules get busted. They're here. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. The ultimate in alien terror. The thing. A world inside the computer where man has never been. Tron. Every summer, Chevy Chase takes his family on a little trip. 
This year he went too far. National Lampoon's Vacation. How much love, sex, fun, and friendship can a person take? The story of eight old friends searching for something they lost and finding that all they needed was each other. The big chill. In a world this cold, you need your friends to keep you warm. If Nancy doesn't wake up screaming, she won't wake up at all. A Nightmare on Elm Street. The man, the music, the madness, the murder, the motion picture. Amadeus. Everything you've heard is true. Cute, clever, mischievous, intelligent, dangerous. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. There are some very good reasons to be afraid of the dark. Fright Night. If you love being scared, it'll be the night of your life. 1962. JFK was in the White House. John Glenn was in orbit. Cadillacs had fins. Beehives were in. And girls really knew how to tease. Hairspray. You see them on the street. You watch them on TV. You might even vote for one this fall. You think they're people just like you. You're wrong. Dead wrong. They live. Heathers. The film's sword has many edges, all of them super sharp. Heathers is a smart black comedy about high school, vastly inventive and entertaining it nearly every step of the way. The pick possesses the sort of edge and hipness about teen life that will make youth and all audience adopt it as their own. A 10, beautiful, brilliant satire, a remarkable film. It's the hottest day of the summer. You can do nothing. You can do something or you can do the right thing. Somewhere under the sea, you know, beyond at your first I thought the repetition and, and the spaces the were accidental and maybe that Chad but had forgotten to edit or piece something together. But no, 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 no. This... As I sat here, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in a basically dark room with the light of my laptop, sitting back and absorbing this, and it's it such a hypnotic. It was like somebody 
drawing me into that 1980s film trance. And so many films, so many directors, so many actors that had just fled my forebrain. Things I hadn't thought about in maybe since the 80s. Things that at the time were just so important to me. And a lot of things because, you know, there's that age difference that makes all the difference. Um, films like music, the things we really glom onto and stick with, uh, hit us between 12 and 22 for some reason, maybe. And I know that th that can change, and that's a very vague observation. But that time when going to the movies or watching a film with your friends before people get married, start pairing off and shifting the whole paradigm of what life is. I mean, a lot of uh, older who I don't often sit in the same place with friends and watch a movie together and banter and then talk about it after. In fact, uh, talking about a film after is only a few minutes and there's just so much of it. The scarcity of it was very special back in the day. Now, I mean, you could go to Netflix or any of these streaming services or Realms of Obtaining and you can just binge and watch so many films and it just all gets buried. Whereas it's hard for something to stand out in my head anymore like it used to. But uh, I made a, a little list that uh, I'll, I'll take a few moments here and do... Uh, so what is this? One, two, three, four, five, nine films from the 1980s that at the time, and even now, I mean, I think of them. I don't know if I could sit through them again and really enjoy them. Uh, that films like Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble, which is a later 80s film and was just one of those films that somebody got the opportunity to just go wild uh, with a Hollywood studio backing them. And the story goes that the Hollywood studio that should have been watching him and pulling in the reins was busy pulling in the reins on a completely other, even bigger budgeted film. So he got to make this. I mean, I tried watching it with some friends recently, my European friends, and they were just horrified. They thought it was the stupidest film they ever saw. And uh, letting me choose a film to watch, it became a joke. Oh, yeah, what is this, another nothing but trouble? But there is something about that film that compels me. I, I don't know, maybe it's just like the film Ishtar. I mean, everybody hated it. Yes, it drags in parks, parts, but to me, that was just D Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty playing these total jerks and i just thought of another that i'm writing down uh it, and the songs that they wrote it was like uh the retarded and i did please that's that the mentally handicapped for lack of a better term uh simon and garfunkel brought to my eyes and that movie really made me laugh a lot and yeah again it probably could have had 20 minutes a half hour cut out of it but that kind of 
it, I don't know if it would be the same if it was made snappier. There was something about that slow moving that amplified the parts uh, that were funny. A film like Pennies from Heaven, Steve Martin singing and dancing and having this sad, sad story, but somehow compelling and at moments quite funny and touching. The whole thing with his wife and the lipstick on her bosoms. Uh, all these strange touches. And it was an adaptation of a BBC TV miniseries with Bob Hoskins, which I finally got to see later. But it just, there is something about that film again the production, the making things so big and then drawing them into so slow and bleak. Just a great film in my mind that most people would say, oh, please. Um, Streets of Fire with Michael Perre and Diane Lane. In my head at the time, I mean, I did not, and I will say this really clearly, Diane Lane did nothing for me, and the Diane Lane songs probably, I would say, could be cut out of the film, but uh, young Willem Dafoe as this flat-topped, menacing villain, and Michael Perret is some sort of proto-80s James Dean without the actual great acting talent, but he carried it off to me. And I really, as a fable and the way it was shot, uh, that was just, to me, a film that I saw a couple times in the theater and uh, rented on VHS and was entertained, even though most people don't even think of it anymore kind of a like the last starfighter uh, i guess because i grew up working in and hung out in arcades and in the 80s uh the early 80s especially that whole arcade lifestyle before the home gaming systems and just the changes of the times that whole movie about this kid playing a video game and getting drawn off into uh outer space adventures was so cool and so fun. I, I really dubbed The Last Starfighter. I, I, is this a list of guilty pleasures, perhaps? Yeah, perhaps. And then there was the movie Neighbors with John Belushi. Uh, I don't remember a lot of it. I remember it was this dark comedy and offbeat, and I remember loving it in the theater and the week that it was in the theaters in my hometown, seeing it a couple of times. And now, that's one that I think I would like to revisit. But that's an 80s film that, again, it's been forgotten. I don't think too many people... I, I It just popped into my mind, uh, thinking about 80s movies, that out of nowhere, almost, it manifested. Wild at heart. This was the first David Lynch film that really grabbed me. The first Nicolas Cage film that really grabbed me. Uh, the Laura Dern. Uh, this movie, to me, was just, at the time, so brilliant, so funny, so poignant, such a strange love story. Uh, I... And Mike David Lynch's cinematography and the way it was put together, this, to me, is still... I mean, I don't know if it would stand up to watching it again, because, I don't know, 
as I've gotten older, that kind of thing just, I, I grew up a little. I don't know. I can't say that I grew up a little. I am probably one of the most immature 63-year-olds on that you'll ever meet that functions at all. And believe me, I only function to a certain degree. I fake it very well here in Ansug uh, land, but I am hapless at functioning in the real world. Uh, as I've said many times, if I could figure out a way to make my living dribbling into a microphone like this with the stuff that peels off of the top of my head, uh, my life would be complete. Um, another film, I, and actually, yeah, that it will be 10 because I thought of another one, as I said. But uh, number nine is Robin Williams in Robert Altman's Popeye. And it actually has gotten better with age. That is a totally strange but wonderful and loving take on the mythos of those Popeye cartoons and even the Thimble Theater comic strips from back in the 20s and 30s, the cartoonist Seagar. Um, Robin Williams never takes it over the top. He's so, it, well, I, I restrained in that crazy makeup. Shelley Duvall is olive oil. Um, the Bluto character, you could go either way, but the music by Harry Nielsen, this may be pennies from heaven and Popeye. The, these might be, for my taste, the most effective musicals I can think of. Uh, Popeye has some just wonderful songs, including Everything is Food. The just a great, great film. And the one that popped into my head when I was talking about Pennies from Heaven and Ishtar uh, was King of Comedy. Rupert Hipkin, played by Robert De Niro, and this seeking, this obsession to be famous and a talk show host. Uh, I can resonate with that. Uh, I would love, even though I don't know that I would make a very good one, to be that kind of Johnny Carson, Conan O'Brien, David Letterman talk show host. But of course, I would probably more, be more like a Joe Franklin or a, I don't know how many people remember Woody Woodbury, who had a talk show uh, on TV in the late 60s, early 70s, to almost no effect. I mean, that was Joey Bishop. A lot of people failed, including Jerry Lewis, whose attempts at talk shows, uh, he actually tried going up against Johnny Carson back in the 60s as a nighttime talk host and failed miserably. Um, but King of Comedy, just that obsession and all these people obsessed with fame and Jerry Lewis playing this arrogant, creepy guy so well. A, a, a brilliant, brilliant 80s film. Uh, yep, yeah, these are my 80s films. And uh, yeah, let's not belabor things because we've got Frank Edward Nora and his take coming right now. Take it away, Frank. Yeah, there's just like some essential quality to 80s movies where it seemed like the uh, the feeling of the times of the zeitgeist in the 80s uh, was very much uh, influenced by the movies and then vice versa. The movies were sort of a reflection of the times. I think the 80s 
talking about the years 1980 through 1989, and I, I think I, I started off beginning of the 80s. I was 12, and by the end, I was I was 23. That is quite a, a formative time, right? Because my birthday is in October, so January 1st, 1980, I would be 12, and then January 1st, 1989, I would have been um, 22, but then later in the year, I turned 23. So those are obviously very formative years, and so for me and my Generation X, um, the 80s were really very formative times, and I feel like um, definitely going to the movies was huge. I think we would go to the movies almost like every weekend, right? Uh, really, and it was really important. I, I remember I have a uh, like sort of a uh, you know like a calendar book where I started writing down the movies that I saw, and I know I still have it somewhere. I think it was a calendar book of like the Kilbin Cats. Remember that whole thing? I try to you know I would have loved to have found it for this uh, segment, but I remember um, <clears throat> especially you know when when you're younger. Uh, going to see movies that are a little more adult oriented. I know my brother, me and my brother were talking about there's a movie at Excalibur uh, from somewhere in the early 80s, sort of a retelling of the King Arthur myth. And it, it did, you know, it had like a lot of sex and violence in it. And it was because I think some people left because it was just too much. They left the theater. Um, that one was like that. And then uh, I remember seeing Pennies from Heaven when I was a kid. That was in that book. I think it was 81, 82. In fact, we had an episode of Central about uh, Pennies from Heaven and I think Cars from many years ago. And I rewatched the movie. And yeah, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's really such a great movie. Again, from early 80s somewhere. Steve Martin. And <laughs> very, really, it's not a comedy. It's a very kind of, uh, depressing movie but it's great uh it's sort of like this weird musical set in during the depression but again it was it was it was something i wrote down i actually did ratings for the movies um i wish i could yeah I, i'll find it I, i'll find it eventually but but yeah i mean if you think about it like uh at some point in the 80s you know we got a cable television but you know back then so we started off the 80s without cable just had the old CRTs, you know, the cathode ray tubes, which generally were smaller, a fuzzier picture, right? And with the, and and we didn't have a VCR until a little bit later either. So TV watching was very kind of well, you just had to watch what was on. Um, so the divergence, the difference between a movie and what you had at t- at home was just incredible. Like you go to the movies. And it is almost like, you know, when everyone's you know talking about virtual reality, this, whatever. Uh, a movie in a movie theater is like super immersive. It really is like, uh, you know, the heat, the big screen, the sound system. Uh, and this is before every movie theater was, a, you know, a uh, Dolby Atmos or IMAX or whatever. Just the movie theaters were just like, it's just a regular movie theater. Though back then, a lot of the uh, uh, former large movie theaters uh, were, were were being cut up into smaller spaces. But anyway, I always remember sort of, uh, and it still happens that sense that when you when you leave a movie, and then you go out into the parking lot or whatever, and you're sort of like you have this weird like you're sort of 
it's weird to be back in the real world. It's, it, it is sort of, the movies are sort of so immersive. And especially back then, I think as time has gone on, our home setups, I mean, I know some people have home theater setups, but just, you know, I'm here in my basement here. Uh, the TV that's here, and you could watch a movie on it, is would be much, much more, you know, on demand. You can watch it when you want. It's a bigger screen. It's a little more similar to going to the movies. So my personal going to the movies, uh, I think I did continue going to the movies almost every week or every two weeks, you know, until like at some point in the 90s, I sort of dropped off on that. But And I would say that like, uh, you know, my sort of weird situation, like in college when I, 1985, when I first went to college and met uh, Mad Mike, my radio uh, co- co-host for, for many years, uh, he was very much like uh, influenced by the movies. Like, and, and I have talked about this so much that it seemed like we were actually living out sort of like being characters in a movie. And that may be just my generation, uh, you know, gener- Generation X, or specifically the grouping around me is, I would say, people born in the first uh, third of Generation X, which would be, uh, you know, being born between 65 and 70, right? The first five years, and how we related to the movies. I know that um, Mike was especially influenced by uh, Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High from... That's from 84-ish. I should be looking this up. but So like, he wore Hawaiian shirts and had this devil-may-care attitude. And uh, he was very specific. And not just that, all of the 80s teen movies, uh, which they had this sort of, um, you know, the 80s cool guy uh, archetype. Um, you know, and usually it was sort of like a duo, uh, someone that was more sort of like wild and crazy, and then the other of the duo is a little bit more like reserved and nervous. So that was my role. I was sort of the more reserved and nervous and, and uh, you know, uh, nerdy kind of uh, person. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, we discovered the movie O.C. and Stiggs uh, by Robert Altman, uh, one of his lesser-known films. I was absolutely shocked at the parallels with my own, my own, my own college years. Uh, O.C. and Stiggs was sort of based on, I think, an article or, you know, sort of a story. And I think it was a National Lampoon uh, about these two guys in, that are in college. Or I think they're in college and they're crazy adventures. And they even had this weird friend, you know, and we had Physics Phil, which is our like weird friend. Um, weird patterns going on and weird connections. Now, if, now you could just say that you know, culturally speaking, we are Generation X and we sort of, you know, didn't have, uh, you know, a, a huge cultural, you know, a lot of people, you know, dealing with the difficulties, right? you know, it's sort of the Depression, World War One, the Depression, World War Two, Vietnam, all these other things. So, but I think for us, living after all that stuff happened, to us, like TV and movies and media and music, we're much more, we, we sort of based our identity much more on those things, and especially the movies, right? But there's a certain, I'm trying to think about, there's a certain tone or aspect or feeling about the characters in these movies that is very specific to the 80s. Um, it's sort of a character that's, 
sort of uh, sure of himself, amused with the situation, again with that sort of uh, sort of smug attitude that you're sort of above it all, but you're going to deal with it. I think a movie like Die Hard, you know, which I think is from '84 uh, or '85, a Die Hard, of course, with Bruce Willis, uh, you know, the, at the Nakatomi Tower. That's a great example of that. Like his character is definitely in that archetype. Hans, where I want Hans, it's like I want my detonators. Come on, Hans, yippee kaye, motherfucker. In fact, uh, I saw there's a they're selling an advent calendar now, which is uh, Hans Gruber falling out of the Nakatomi Towers. Every day you put him down another another floor on the Nakatomi Tower to get your candy and stuff out of your uh, advent calendar. <laughs> but that kind of character, and then I think also um, in a movie that that was a bit more different kind of a genre of aliens right the sequel to alien which was not in the 80s the original alien with sigourney weaver uh was in 1979 so we all had seen the movie it's obviously a great movie and then i think it was 86 was the sequel aliens um by james cameron right and uh again sort of like the space marines and their attitude and stuff it was like you know game over man you know, like it was uh that same sort of character that seems very much restricted to the eighties. It, it's it's a it's very hard to pin down the nature of the of those characters. There's, but there's a certain self assuredness, um, sort of being amused by by the world, feeling above it all, but also being very sort of engaged. It's hard to say. But of course, going into the eighties, in nineteen eighty, in May was uh, Empire Strikes Back, right? So we had all seen Star Wars, the original, in 1977. Uh, that movie, I think, was uh, you know the movie that really, I think, started a different relationship with the movies because, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to have uh, seen Star Wars. At, I was 10 years old, and... Uh, no, I was nine. I was nine. I hadn't turned yet, ten yet. I was nine years old. I remember going to see Star Wars, not knowing anything about it. This was 1977. And it changed my life, seeing that movie. And I think a whole generation, as uh, Kevin Smith, the Gen X filmmaker, uh, also from New Jersey, has said that you know Star Wars was our generation's Vietnam. That is, it is our common experience that changed our lives. And so, you know, it when the movie came out, Right, you just you had to go to the movie theater to see it. There was no home video cassettes or anything immediately, and there was no toys. There were no Star Wars toys until the next year. They didn't. They it didn't. Believe it or not, they didn't even get any toys out by the Christmas season of 1977. Even though the movie came out in May, everyone involved thought Star Wars was a piece of shit. They thought it was going to be a huge bomb. They had no idea what a phenomenon it would become. So. So, you know, coming into 1980, we were so hyped up. We were so ready to see this movie. I remember exactly where we saw it at Blue Star Shopping Center there on Route 22. And uh, <laughs> my and my mother would also often mention this years later. 
that uh, somehow we were sort of like in the lobby of the movie. There was this crowd when they opened the doors to the theater. She's like, we were all almost like lifted up off our feet because the crowd was so dense and just sort of moving towards the doors. And I remember being in the theater. I even sort of remember we were in sort of one of the back rows to the left. And because I remember the movie started, you know, and you see the, the, the probots being launched. And then the film broke. Can you imagine? And it was close to being like a riot. And there was, you know, uh, I've, I've, then, the, you know, it took them like a long time. It seemed like a long time, probably a couple of minutes to fix it. And um, then, of course, the movie, which lived up in every way, shape and form to our expectations. What a great movie. Empire Strikes Back. What a way to start the 80s. Uh, no, I am your father. No, it's not spoiler alert, but <laughs> everyone remembered it. This is kind of a Mandela thing. Luke, I am your father. He doesn't say that. Did Obi-Wan tell you what happened to your father? Yeah, he told me you killed him. No, I am your father. I'll never join you. Uh... Yeah, and I, I all I often um, really kind of you know the '80s. I, I know it's tempting to think of the '80s as one thing, but there is something special about '80, '80, '81, and '82, with '83 being the cuspier of this particular thing. Now, I'm I'm often sort of tempted to think, you know, is it because of the age that I was at that time, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, right? Very, very formative years. Very, very the society around you, the culture is very influential. But looking back on it, it is not just my age. Um, in all different aspects, those years, there's a certain magic going on. That, uh, in terms of uh, everything, the movies, the music, the graphic design, everything. And '83 is kind of a shift, right? And then '84. 85, 86 is a very distinct time as well. The mid-80s, even in graphic design, there's these trends. You see, like, gray backgrounds with grids and just for a couple of years. And then the later 80s, and again, with music, music changes a lot in the mid-80s compared to the early 80s. A lot of times when people think of 80s music, it's the new wave hits of the early 80s. Uh, mid-80s, and I'm starting to get into the mid-80s uh, pop music more. Um... Recently, what was it? Jane Wideland's uh, from the Go Go's, her first uh, solo album. Uh, Why does it have to be such a blue thing? Especially like the, 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 the drum machines or the kind of drums they were using. And then, of course, later 80s becomes very different. And with movies, it's the same way. It's a very different uh, tone. Um, there's, I would say there's sort of three phases of the 80s. And um, yeah, so. Sort of representative of that in 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 May of uh, 1983, of great anticipation, the movie that was supposed to be called Revenge of the Jedi is actually renamed Return of the Jedi, and I clearly remember going to see it and being a bit disappointed by it. And that's sort of like May 1983. <laughs> you could say that 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 those three years between Empire and and Return of the Jedi really represents this super magical time, and then it's a bit of a letdown. Also in the in the world of video games, which are very much part of this uh, zeitgeist, um, 
there was a, a home video game crash in 1983, which led to a lot of the video game companies going out of business uh, uh, after the Christmas season of 83. And then, of course, in 84, the Nintendo Entertainment System is released here in the U.S. I believe it was 84, yeah. And that just changes everything, right? So that's totally different than the Atari-dominated uh, early 80s. I mean, obviously, Atari 2600 or VCS came out in 77, but... Um, <coughs> let me look at because I do have uh, the box office list of all the years here so we can look at some uh, movies starting off the box office uh, of course the number one movie uh, by far of 1980 was Empire Strikes Back which we talked about we'll do the top 10 here 9 to 5 I, I, I mean I know of that movie, I think I may have seen it. Stir Crazy. I think we went to see Stir Crazy. It was Gene Wilder and um, Richard Pryor in jail. I, I think we liked that. Kramer versus Kramer. We may have actually seen that as well. About a, a drama about a, a, a couple and their child going through a divorce. Any which way you can. Clint Eastwood with the orangutan. I think we went to see those movies. Private Benjamin, of course. Uh, what's her name? As a, a, a Going to the military boot camp. Goldie Hawn. Uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. I don't think we saw that at the time. Sissy Spacek, right? Was that about a country singer? Uh, Smokey and the Bandit 2. We may have gone to see that. I mean, that was that was one of those movies with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, I think. I don't know, but I always remember at the end, they would have those, uh, at, during the credits, they had these these self-indulgent bloopers where Dom DeLuise is trying to, like, every time... Can you imagine working with Dom DeLuise? Every time he, like, like yes, we could... He starts cr- cracking up laughing at, at every take, wasting all this film, this frickin' Dom DeLuise. And Burt Reynolds is sort of spurring him on. And Sally Field is sort of in the corner somewhere. You know? uh, the Blues Brothers was the number nine movie of the year. That movie, I, I'm not sure that we saw it then, but I've certainly come to appreciate it afterwards. And... That also, like just the characters of Jake and Elwood Blues, very much uh, defined sort of the 80s cool guy kind of vibe. Um, and it was a very important movie overall. <coughs> I have to see that again. Carrie Fisher from Star Wars was in that. Um, and at number 10 is uh, Ordinary People. <coughs> kind of remember that. I, just, I remember that, that uh, local New Jersey band Smirsh had an album called Ordinary People after the movie. Um, and continuing on, I mean, this is all of the movies that came out, basically, but uh, Popeye. We did go to see Popeye, the Altman version of Popeye. Very strange movie, right? Robert Altman's Popeye with Robin Williams in the Popeye Get Up. And, of course, uh, Shelley Duvall is olive oil. And she was also in the next movie on the list here, The Shining. And I don't know if we saw The Shining at the time, but, of course, that since has become... Such an important, such an interesting movie and so many levels. Of course, that's Kubrick. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that a lot of it involves, like, the faked moon landings, but it's a whole other topic. You know, Cheech and Chong's next movie. Uh, Caddyshack, you know, I know people have been really obsessed with Caddyshack. I don't know, I don't really remember seeing it that much, and but I know that also, the... the, the um, Bill Murray character in that also is kind of 
embraced as sort of a, an archetype of the times. Um, Friday the 13th, Brubaker, the jazz singer. Flash Gordon, yes, that was a good one. The uh, the 1980 Flash Gordon. Raging Bull, Xanadu. Altered States, I do think, yeah, I think we went to see Altered States. That Again, that was probably a little much for a kid about a guy that goes into the sensory deprivation tank. The Nude Bomb was the number 30 movie. What? It was the Get Smart movie. I've been meaning to rewatch that. Oh God, book two. Those Oh God movies were big in the 80s. I guess the first one was in the 70s with um, <clears throat> George Burns as God. I'm just, I'm just skimming the rest of the movies here. Foxes. I know I know. I play the uh, trailer for Foxes on the other side. I love playing, uh, you know, um, those 80s teen comedy trailers on the other side of the overnight escape. The Gong Show movie was the number 44 movie of the year, and I, I did recently watch this. There's a good copy on the Internet Archive, or at least there was. Um, really wild movie. Uh, really worth, worth seeing if you're into such things. I guess we'll stop at the top uh, 50 here. <laughs> Let's go to 81. I, it, I, I'll have to figure out how to do this faster here. because uh... Yeah, char- so we're in 81 now. So this is the... Uh... What the hell? Oh, I'm sorry. We got a... Something happened here. Why? Why am I? Hmm, hold on a second. All right, we got it. We got it. Eighty-one. Superman two was the top movie. Yes, that was the that was a great one with, of course, uh, Terrence Stamp as General Zod. I clearly remember going to see that in the movies. It was a great movie. We all loved it. Um, and when Superman gives up his power so he can, I guess, have sex with Lois Lane. <laughs> I don't know. What was going on? Why did he give up his powers? And then General Zod, kneel before Zod. That was a great one. Stripes with Bill Murray. I think we saw it, but I don't remember much about it. I just remember boom, chugga, lugga, lugga, boom, chugga, lugga, lugga. It's like a military boot camp. Cannonball Run, another one of those uh, Burt Reynolds movies. Uh, For Your Eyes Only, James Bond, right? We saw that. The Four Seasons, I I think we saw that as well in the movies. It's sort of a, it was a Neil Simon play adapted as a movie with Alan Alda, Carol Burnett, <laughs> Ned Beatty maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Excalibur, the aforementioned Excalibur was the number six movie of the year. History of the World Part One by Mel Brooks. I think we saw that. Bustin' Loose, was that another, uh, what's his name movie? Yeah. Richard Pryor, yeah. The Great Muppet Caper. Of course, we saw, we would have seen that. And American Werewolf in London. We love this movie. We we were just uh, really... It's a great movie. And I remember my Uncle Bruce was like, I, I didn't like that movie. Was it a comedy? Was it a drama? Was it horror? We're like, it's all of them. It's a great movie. We just loved American Werewolf in London. Halloween 2, Body Heat. And then, of course... Raiders of the Lost Ark. How could that be number 14? Or was that... Did it come out... The Christmas somehow Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is the number fourteen movie. That to me was one of the biggest movies. This was sort of Harrison Ford, who also was Han Solo, is now this other movie, also sort sort of like Star Wars, based on the old movie serials. Just incredible! Uh, what a movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, the Final Conflict. 
Kitty, what was that? That has, Was that something about... No, I'm thinking of the Philadelphia Project about an aircraft carrier that goes through time. But the final conflict, was it aliens? What was it? I don't know. The Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. Of course, we saw that. Outland, of course. Yes, the... Uh... Kitty, what's going on? Outland with uh, Sean Connery, right? Out on uh, Io, the, the Jupiter moon. Dragon Slayer, I re- that was a great movie, uh, and they used a, a, a new technique called Go Motion, where they actually moved the dragon model a little bit in each frame, so it had that blur, so it looked real. Time Bandits, that was a great one. Uh, Neighbors, that's a great movie, where, where sort of uh, John Belushi and... Uh, Dan Aykroyd kind of switch roles where John Belushi is sort of the straight man and Dan Aykroyd's the weirdo. We saw that. We saw that in movies. Modern Problems. Chevy Chase getting psychic powers. That was horrible. We saw that in the movies, though. Yeah. All right. Arthur. Wow, Arthur. I thought that was a big movie. Why is that number 37 with... um? What's, it, what's his name? I'm trying to... Rec- I'm recalling all these names off the top of my head. Uh... Uh yeah, John Gielgud was it was his uh was his butler, and that great theme song by Christopher Cross. When you get caught between the moon and New York City, the best that you can do is fall in love with Liza Minnelli. <laughs> yes, which is it's gonna drive me crazy. I was talking about him the other day. What whatever happened to him? That guy. You know who I'm talking about. I'll think of it in a moment. I think I need more coffee anyway. Let me pause. Coffee and memory break. All right. I went upstairs. I got coffee. I'm like, I still can't remember this guy's name. Right as I'm sitting down, it flashes in my mind. Dudley Moore. Yes. We're talking about Dudley Moore. Who else is... What other celebrities named Dudley? Well, Dudley Do-Right, but he's a cartoon fictional man. I think there was a Dudley Do-Right movie, but that was more in the 90s. We're not talking about that. Brendan Fraser, maybe? Anyway, uh... Yeah, Arthur. He also was in that movie 10 with Bo Derek. I think we saw that. Anyway, Arthur, number 37. I don't know how that works. I thought that was a bigger movie. Taps with, uh, was it, what's that guy's name? Timothy, Tim Hutton, maybe? No, is that, was that, was that his name? It was about some depressed kid in the in the army. <laughs> yeah, now we're up to, yeah, the 50s and stuff, yeah. Let's go now to 1982, which, which, as we know, is a huge, huge year for movies. Of course, the number one movie was E.T., The Extraterrestrial, a movie we saw, but I, even at the time, I kind of realized it was good, and I remember liking it a lot when I saw it. It was a real crowd-pleaser, but I don't think that's a great movie. I really don't. I, I, I haven't seen it in many years. I may have not seen it since then. Uh, E.T. found home. But of course, yes, as I said, Raiders of the Lost Ark must have come out towards the end of the year. Christmas movie, I guess. So yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is number two behind E.T. And I guess because its box office is split between the two years. Um, I thought Raiders did... No, I, mean, I guess... It, I don't know. I, we're not going to get that deep. Rocky Three, of course. We all want to see all the Rocky movies. Uh, on Golden Pond. I remember we went to see that one. That's one of the ones that was in uh, that book. Uh, with, uh, what was the guy's name? Henry something. <laughs> um, 
But anyways, about these uh, these two these this elderly couple living by a lake. <laughs> Exciting. An officer and a gentleman. No porkies. You know, I don't know that I saw porkies. Uh, I don't know if they. My parents took us to see porkies. I think I did see it eventually. I've been meaning to see it again because uh, <clears throat> I think that's very much a zeitgeist of the time. It's like the, on the poster, it's you know, sort of a peeping tom looking at girls in the shower, and you know, that's just the way it was. It was sort of naughty fun back then, but today it would be considered uh, grounds for cancellation, obviously. Yeah, Arthur again here is number seven, so I guess it did straddle the two years. Then we have Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Such an improvement over the first Star Trek movie, which was, I believe, in 79. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Hit all the right notes. Um, Khan! Ricardo Montalban, you know, I think I think Fantasy Island was still going, and then he was the star of that, and he, was, he played Khan. He reprised his role from the original series. That was a great movie. Poltergeist, talk about, I mean, it was that so... Uh, Great movie, but really scary. Steven Spielberg. I even made a, a parody of it if, uh, around that same time called Poultry Geist. About, and we, instead of an evil clown puppet that came to life, it was an evil teddy bear. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. You know, I don't know that I saw that one. I, I, my parents probably didn't take me to it because I was still a kid. Chariots of Fire, though, we did see, which won the uh, Academy Award. Um, it was about this uh, these, these British uh, runners. And, uh, of course, that song, do, 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 the Chariots of Fire theme. Was that by Vangelis or? Hmm. Uh, yeah. Annie, of course, was um, a big movie. The movie adaptation of Annie, uh, of the Broadway show Annie, was a big one. Uh, first Blood, which was the, the uh, first Rambo movie. Firefox, that also was with Clint Eastwood. There was a, a cool laser disc video game of that. Conan the Barbarian, uh, the Barbarian, we love that one, of course. That was the first Conan movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Sword and the Saucer, that was another movie that was uh, very more adult-oriented we went to see that we were kind of disturbed by. <clears throat> Time Bandits, again, uh, right? Yeah, again, that must have straddled the two years. Taps, <laughs> yeah. Tron, of course, I remember going to see Tron, and I had this moment. While I was watching it, I became very self-aware in a meta sense of like where I was in the world. It was really weird. Tron, the one of the first real computer-generated movies about someone going into a computer. The World According to Garp, I kind of remember that. Victor Victoria, about a gender-swapping, uh, what's her name? Yeah. Blade And Blade Runner. Here we go, 1982. Blade Runner. Again with Harrison Ford with the trifecta of his three big characters, Deckard. Solo and um, Jones. What a great movie. What an important movie. Uh, turned out to, I, I mean, such a huge movie. Really heralded the dawn of the dystopian future, the cyberpunk genre, everything. And they go, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Of course, what a classic movie that we all based our lives on. At least Mad Mike did. The Toy. That was a Richard Pryor movie. I remember the, the kid that started in The Toy was from from Jersey. He used to go to the same comic store I went to. I don't know if I ever met him. The re-release of Bambi also was a big box office success. Creep Show, I remember that. Yeah, 48 Hours, Neighbors. Anyway, let's go to 83. <clears throat> I'm on Box Office Mojo, by the way. The number one movie, not surprisingly, is Return of the Jedi, as I mentioned. Though it was a bit of a disappointment. Tootsie, of course, more cross-dressing uh, going on with Dustin Hoffman. Flashdance, I'm 
not sure if we saw that, but I think we did. Trading Places was a big one. Eddie, Mur Eddie Murray and Dan Aykroyd. That was a great one. War Games. I remember that. That was with, uh, what's his name? And John Lithgow was in that one as well. About a kid who hacked in and was going to cause a nuclear war. That was a big movie. Octopussy, of course. James Bond is back. Staying Alive. That was the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, I believe. Uh, Risky Business with Tom Cruise. Mr. Mom, of course, with, uh, yeah. National Lampoon's Vacation, the first one. Superman 3, which is not quite as good as Superman 2. Never Say Never Again, Sean Connery was back as Bond. Gandhi, Jaws 3D, The Big Chill. Yeah, Porky's 2. But as you can see, things are a little different in 80, 83, 84. So now 84, these movies now, I feel, have are, are sort of a, there's a different tone now, a bit of a different tone. Ghostbusters. I got to say, of course we saw Ghostbusters when it came out. <clears throat> that uh, <laughs> the theme song, which of course was, what a great song, you know, Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. Whatever, whatever happened to him. Of course, it was a complete copy of the Huey Lewis song, I Want a New Drug, One That Don't Make Me Sick. So they tried to hire Huey Lewis to do the song. He refused for some reason. I don't know. Just do, I guess he, he thought it was a bad movie about ghosts, but they eventually sued and, and won because Ray Parker completely copied I Want a New Drug for Ghostbusters. Well, I don't know how much the individual singer Ray Parker was involved in the stealing of the song idea, but they, I think they settled it out of court. Though I do feel that, like, as good as Ghostbusters is, that it has just gotten... I'm, I'm tired of Ghostbusters at this point. It's, it's still harped on so much in, in the, uh, the nerd sci-fi fantasy uh, world. And uh, I'm tired of Ghostbusters at this point. Enough Ghostbusters. Then we had Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was eh, definitely a step down. It was still a good movie, not as great. Gremlins, of course, that was fantastic. Everyone loved Gremlins. Karate Kid, you know, I don't know why. I don't know if we saw that. I wasn't really into Karate Kid. Police Academy, I believe we saw that. Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, yes. That one was very era-defining, Beverly Hills Cop. And, of course, Bronson Pinchot is big breakout role as uh, as the art dealer guy Serge Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock again a sequel that was not quite as good Terms of Endearment Romancing the Stone that was good that was uh, Michael Douglas and Catherine something That I remember seeing that that was actually a good movie and you don't hear much about it anymore Splash of course that was, was that Touchstone Pictures Disney getting into more adult oriented fare Daryl Hannah, also in Blade Runner, as a mermaid. And Tom Hanks, before he became so insufferable. Purple Rain. Yeah, it's just so weird. I have just never liked Prince at all. I don't know what it is. I'm not into Prince at all. Um, Grace Stoke, The Legend of Tarzan. I remember seeing that. That was kind of bad. Revenge of the Nerds. Nerds. Bachelor Party. Red Dawn, the first... PG-13 movie about the Russians invading the U.S. Terminator! What the hell? Again, that, uh, how could that be number 21? Terminator was amazing. And, of course, Terminator 2 came in 91, so that wasn't an 80s movie. The Last Starfighter! That was a great one. 
2010, the year we made contact. Yeah, the Muppets take Manhattan. Yentl. Barbara Streisand is in the news because her, her book is coming out. But she was Yentl, another gender-bending story. Let's go to 85. Yeah, so now we're squarely in the mid-80s. And of course, one of the... I mean, this movie defines the mid-80s. Back to the Future, of course. It's another series, just like Ghostbusters, that people harp on and obsess on, perhaps a bit more deservingly, because I do think the Back to the Future movies were better than the Ghostbusters movies, ultimately. But uh, that first Back to the Future, what a great movie. So well done. And I think the sequel as well. Two, but I don't know about three. Beverly Hills Cop. And then Rambo, First Blood Part Two. I wasn't really that into this at the time, but... When I first met Mad Mike in the dorm room in 1985, he was just coming in and like quoting from Rambo. He, he worked at the movie theater, so he must have seen Rambo like a hundred times. Rocky IV, Cocoon. That was about the old people that turned, that turned young or, or were revitalized by an alien cocoon in a swimming pool. The hell. The Goonies, again, it's weird. Like I don't feel a, as a, much of a connection with Goonies. That's what I'm saying. There's like... Uh, that next wave of uh, Gen Xers that were born, let's say, between... Well, see, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, yeah, like 70 and 75, they were a little bit of a different age, and the Goonies affected them more. I feel like I was almost a little too old for the Goonies at that point. Police Academy 2. Fletch, of course. Chevy Chase was really a big star, but his sort of bad attitude and arrogance kind of started hurting him. But the first Fletch, I think, was really good. A View to a Kill, James Bond, of course. Theme song by none other than Duran Duran. National Lampoon's European Vacation, Mask, Breakfast Club. Here we go. Talk about uh, a defining movie for Gen X. I So I sort of feel like, whereas The Goonies was about these little kids, The Breakfast Club was, um, you know, teenagers in high school. So I remember really loving The Breakfast Club, and it's really a defining movie for Gen X. I love that movie. And, of course, the Simple Mind song, Don't you forget about me. I'll be alone, dancing, you know it, baby. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, okay. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, what a, what a point. Where, now where, where was the Mad Max movie? Where was the Road Warrior? I think that was back in 82. That was a huge era-defining movie with this sequel now, the third movie now being bad. There's a kind of a pattern with a lot of these movies that the third movie in it, uh, you know, somehow in this year of 85, there's a lot of disappointing se- sequels. Commando, St. Elmo's Fire, yeah. Another great theme song, Man in Motion, John Parr. Gotta be a man in motion. St. Elmo's Fire. Amadeus, I remember seeing Amadeus. In fact, that guy who played Amadeus, uh, Tom Holst, was was my sister-in-law's boss in the theater for a while. Jewel of the Nile, that was a sequel to um, Romancing the Stone, right? Desperately Seeking Susan, yeah. The Last Dragon? Weird Science, I just thought that was a good one. Let's go to 86. We're going through the 80s here, 80s movies. But it was such a remarkable time. So now in 86, like, I'm not seeing movies quite as much. Now I'm in college, having my own weird movie-like college experience, but... uh, Top Gun, I don't think I ever really saw that or cared much about that. That was a top movie. Crocodile Dundee, you know. That's not a knife, mate. Karate Kid Part 2, Back to School. Was that Rodney Dangerfield? Hey. 
And Aliens, to me, as I said, Aliens, that was a huge era-defining movie for me. Color Purple, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And then a big one, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's a huge one for my generation. Great movie. And again, this sort of Devil May Care lead character with this particular attitude that was very uh, emblematic of the 80s. Downton Abbey and Beverly Hills, Stand By Me. Again, I wasn't as into Stand By Me. I know my friend Peter, that's like his favorite movie of all time. Uh, excuse me, sorry. Poltergeist 2, I don't I don't even know if that was worth talking about. Pretty in Pink, Rocky IV, The Money Pit. Wasn't that uh, Shelley Long after she quit uh, Cheers? Let's go to 87. <coughs> Beverly Hills Cop 2. I do remember I watched some of these movies recently. They're They're still pretty good. Platoon, I remember everyone was talking about that. I think that was a, was that like a uh, Vietnam movie? I don't know if I really saw that one. Fatal Attraction, of course. Glenn Close, The Untouchables, Three Men and a Baby. Again, like 87 is not quite as exciting. Lethal Weapon, Predator, which I did see, but I don't know if I quite embraced it as much as other people did. Robocop, though, that's a great movie. I'll buy that for a dollar. Dirty Dancing, The Living Daylights, another James Bond movie uh, with the theme song by AHA. The single was never released in the U.S. Oh, The Living Daylights. Because all, all of those uh, James Bond songs are, they're written by the same guy, and then he has to deal with like, so he wrote it for Duran Duran. Wrote it, he, he said dealing with AHA was like dealing with the Hitler Youth. Apparently they were very difficult to work with. We only know them from that one iconic music video. Take on me. Take on me. <coughs> Let's see. Uh, Full Metal Jacket, of course. Kubrick. That was quite a movie. <coughs> the Vietnam movie. Like all Kubrick films happening at many different levels. I, I remember liking it. Mannequin. <laughs> Was that Kim Cattrall as a uh, mannequin? I, I do play the trailer on the other side. Spaceballs, eh, Golden Child, Planes, Trains, Automobiles. I, I think that's probably a movie. Princess Bride, another movie that I don't think I've ever seen and everyone obsesses on to the point that there's a Magic the Gathering set of Princess Bride now. Harry and the Hendersons about Bigfoot. All right, let's go to 88. You see, the, the, the sheen is kind of wore off, this super sheen of the first few years of the 80s. Now we're in 88, which I feel is a very different time period. Number one film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um, good movie, of course. One, one A genre I'm quite fond of, the cartoon and humans uh, sort of crossing over and being in the same world together. An incredible technical achievement, incredible intellectual property rights achievement, getting all the characters together, like Bugs Bunny meeting Mickey Mouse. I do feel, though, the movie could have been better as a movie, um, it's uh, it has some flaws, but there's just so much going on, and I do want to rewatch that at some point. Coming to America, that was number two movie. I think that was Eddie Murphy and yeah, Good Morning Vietnam. But a radio host, uh, Robin Williams again, Big with Tom Hanks. That's it. That was a good movie. That's before Tom Hanks became insufferable. Crocodile Dundee two, Three Men and a Baby, and of course Die Hard. So it was '87. Wow. That, to me, is one of the best movies. It is a Christmas movie, yes. 
Love that movie. I actually was watching it on a plane within the past couple of years um, with the sound off. It was just great watching it. I love that movie. Moonstruck, no. Cocktail, no. I don't know. Then you get Beetlejuice, a classic, classic movie, of course. Fish Called Wanda. Yeah, that was good, too. That John Cleese and Michael Palin and all sorts of people were in that one. Willow. Willow was kind of like... Uh, every, like we really thought Willow was like... a. The cover for the cover story for the next Star Wars movie because remember there was this dr- this drought of Star Wars movies between eighty three and ninety nine. Uh, Willow was about this uh, this uh, dwarf magician guy, and they did bring Willow back as a TV series, but that was quickly canceled. That was recently. Uh, Naked Gun, yeah, yeah. Midnight Run, that's one of those movies. Midnight Run is one of those movies. Whenever it comes on, you just have to watch it. Great movie. Um, was it Charles Grodin? He was another one of those guys that was huge and then just kind of disappeared. Though he did have a talk show at one point, I think. Um, and, of course, um, Robert De Niro. Uh, my parents loved it. It was like one of their favorite movies, Midnight Run. is sort of about a bounty hunter bringing this guy back across the country. Oliver and Company wasn't that a Disney that that's when Disney animation was like <laughs> on the not doing too well. All right, let's go to eighty nine, which is our final year of the eighties, and see what's going on. Yes, the first Batman with Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, who also was Mister Mom. Michael Keaton was huge back then. He's still around though. He's come back kind of. Batman. Uh, that was the um, Tim Burton version. I always remember in the trailer, the Joker says, how does he get those wonderful toys? And then in the movie, they took they, they changed it to get those wonderful toys. It was so weird. It was like an, an iconic line that wasn't in the movie. Jack Nicholson as uh, the Joker. I don't know how much I really liked that movie, but it was just sort of there, you know. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third Indiana Jones movie, which actually was much better than the second one. Um... Lethal Weapon 2. Rain Man, of course, everyone saw Rain Man about this autistic guy. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, that was a big one. Look Who's Talking, I wasn't really into Look Who's Talking. Ghostbusters 2, Dead Poet Society, Parenthood. But then Back to the Future Part 2, rock-solid sequel with a lot of predictive programming for 9-11 in it. If you want to look that up, uh, the Twin Pines Mall becomes the Lone Pine Mall, and there's actually... And that video window they have in the in, in the future year twenty fifteen, there's a there's a twin towers that sort of gets cut in half. There's a whole lot of videos about predictive programming. Somehow in nineteen eighty nine, it seems that people knew about nine eleven. That's a whole other. That's very strange. When Harry met Sally, I'll have what she's having. Turner and Hooch. Again, I think Tom Hanks was still kind of fun. I don't know when he turned in, in, into the schmuck he is now that I can't stand. <coughs> Pet Cemetery, The Abyss, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Yeah. Little Mermaid. That was a big, big... Uh, like, was that one of the revivals of Disney animation? It must be, because if the last one they did was Oliver and Company about dogs doing Oliver Twist. The Little Mermaid was, yeah, they had that big revival of their animation scene. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, yeah. Another Naked Gun, another Fletch, yeah. Any 
I feel like there's got to be one more movie here that's important. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, Nightmare in Elm Street, The Dream Child. The Rescuers. Oh, it's a re-release. That Disney movie, The Rescuers, is creepy as hell. Like this little girl being held hostage in this swamp. Ugh. Very bizarre movie. There's something very MK Ultra about that. <laughs> and The Rescuers Down Under, too. Anyway. Eh, we probably missed a few, but... Uh... Oh, Oliver and Company. Wow, I guess it must have been uh, December, January kind of thing. Yeah. And let's keep going. It was like the Young Einstein. There you go. The number 82 film of the year, Young Einstein. I tried looking up this guy, Yahoo Serious from Australia. Like, the, he, he... That was pretty much it for him. He was... He played this young Einstein. Yahoo Serious was the name of the actor. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? I don't know. Anyways, 80s movies. What an incredible time. But I still think, you know, I think that, um, you know, the, the early part. And I think just I still am struggling to understand the uh, the archetypes and how it really reflected us and we reflected it. In a way, how we saw ourselves and that sort of archetype of sort of the... Um, the confident, humorous, kind of devil-may-care attitude of the 80s cool guy archetype. <sighs> it haunts me to this day. But it, but it, but it, but it keeps, me, keeps me going. I think I still have that sort of 80s movie persona that is uh, one of the foundational building blocks of my day-to-day awareness and personality. But it feels good. As uh, as phony as it may be, ultimately, it's not phony. It's my generation, damn it, Gen X. Anyways, some thoughts on eighties movies. Back to you, PQ. Thank you, Mister Nora. That was that was pretty good. Uh, of so many movies that were just outside of my realm, or movies I saw that I just completely have spaced out. I don't even have. Thoughts on? I mean, Excalibur. We get the whole sword and sorcery thing. Uh, I don't know. I bet Willow. These movies, I think I developed an instant meh for. I mean, I didn't. I, I think I may have even saw them when they were on what VHS or uh, HBO at somebody's house hanging out. But that these weren't things that really grabbed me and said oh yes yes pq this this is the stuff um that the movies that i thought were great i i mean i tim burton was just so important to me Wee's big adventure i sort of like beetlejuice you know the whole michael keaton thing but then i waited online and i've told this story many times to see the premiere of batman and i was so ready for this great depiction and jack nicholson was in it prince was doing the soundtrack and it was just it was just such a terrible toss-off to me that didn't at all represent i mean i was reading those gritty new batman comics and it didn't reflect those it was just kind of to me a mess i mean obviously it was very popular and did well, and people loved it. 
at the time, but I was not the guy for that film at all. <laughs> not even slightly. And that those Star Wars sequels, just, I had seen the original Star Wars and I thought it was pretty cool, but the whole chic coolness of it, and I think seeing that Star Wars Christmas special that's now infamous as this terrible, one of the worst things. I mean, George Lucas tried to bury it. And yeah, that just killed any momentum. And yeah, the Star Wars toys to me. I mean, to me, action figures were like, you know, six, seven inches tall and substantial. And I remember looking forward to these action figures and sets. And they were just like, like the new G.I. Joes, these little tiny things about the size of your thumb. And to me, that was just, where's the, where's the real action figures? Um, and I like the Back to the Future films. Those, those were fun. Although in retrospect, I don't think I would ever sit down and watch them again. The, at the time, you know, it's like Ghostbusters, yeah, another one that really got overplayed and over done and the, oh and the purple rain purple rain to me that was just well i was really into prince i felt like i had discovered him because i was a little ahead of the curve as far as his popularity goes i'd seen him on what radio 1990 or one of these uh, the things that you they used to show overnight on usa and there i was some sort of insomniac sitting up and watching these things, and they showed this guy, I think probably something from the Controversy album, and I thought it was just so cool and funky, and yeah, when the movie came out, it just struck me mostly the right way. I know I saw it more than once in the theater and thought it was really great, but I, another, all these things, I am really finding that maybe it's because uh, I'm not quote-unquote stoned anymore that could be a really big factor in my changing taste because my tastes are changing more and more my interests are really starting to alter and the way I look at things and maybe part of it is some sort of postpartum depression because I have to admit I mean me and weed were just so intertwined with one another it, it was like this long-term marriage. Or, I, I don't even know how to better describe it, but that's a whole other thing. The 80s movies and this, this was just great hearing everybody's memories and having thoughts of my own rekindled. And it, we will do things like this. More things like this sound like a good idea. But now it's time to thank Chad, Doc Slees, and Frank for doing this with me once again. Um, in a way, I don't know. I'm still considering the future of this show and whether I should continue, find a successor to host it, or we should just uh, change it, maybe make it not as often, make it a more sporadic thing like I do with The Appreciator. But I am feeling a potential change in the air. Uh, I really feel like it's, I have been in this groove and this rut, and yes, for, it, it, it's very comfortable staying in a pattern, but things have got to change around here, uh, just in my personal life. 
and that, of course, reflects my leisure life, the time I have, when I have time. Uh, a lot of big changes coming as far as that goes. Although, uh, just uh, just keep your ears peeled if you're uh, listening and you like the uh, things I'm doing with Mark Rose and the Zappa things. We It's in the can. I just have to do some finishing touches, make a graphic and post it. Sometime in the next day or two, the Frank Zappa, the second look at the Zappa albums, where we look at Lumpy Gravy and We're Only In It For The Money is coming. And I think there's going to be a follow-up with Mr. Siquez, uh, the drummer who I interviewed, the local guy. He wants to talk more about drummers that he loves. And you know me, I love listening to people talk about the stuff they appreciate. That really does a lot for me. So uh, that is uh, something I'm trying to schedule up and get done and release. And uh, we're slowly working on another big appreciation showcase. And I am considering ways of quickly expediting episodes of The Appreciator, because that was the original intention, uh, a fairly regular program where they're, like Frank did, switching off from the original overnight scape format to more of a rampler, just knock it out, no editing, throw it down, get it out type of a thing. And I just need to find that groove. PQ River finds his groove. Well, Brett, whenever I'm calling myself, it goes back and forth. And I guess I'll always be PQ River, especially as far as the Yonsug, no matter what I call myself. When you've done, what, 800-plus shows as PQ River, and suddenly you're somebody else, I don't know. But uh, let's talk about next week's Overnightscape Central, when we're going to talk about the things we're listening to now. I mean, we've done shows on this before, but I think over COVID and this last year especially, it's just been so weird. I think a lot of people are shifting over that life is changing in some really interesting and uh, it's sometimes very drastic ways for us all. Uh, life changes for just about everybody in the last few years on the Onsug. And uh, it, it, what we listen to now uh, will reflect that. So let's talk about that. And you know how that works. Get me that file uh, by next Monday, the 13th. Or, you know, you're probably going to have till the 14th, but do it now. I mean, I heard from Manny the Mailman, and uh, he, th I understand completely the idea of contributing to the Overnightscape Central sounds inviting, and you think about it, but the time to sit down in front of a microphone, especially if you don't live alone, I mean, Eddie hiding in his car, uh, it leaked all to podcasts. Uh, especially if we have somebody else around, have to make these like subterfuge, hide somewhere so that we're, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a self-conscious thing. We feel like we're projecting something into the environment that's just kind of personal. And it's distracting, I guess, to some degree, trying to focus on something when there's other people around doing stuff and sounds and what have you. But, uh, Here's the, yeah, you have till the 13th of November in the evening, and you send that file to kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Or uh, you, you write something up, just a few simple comments. 
and I am more than glad to include them, and you become part of the program, and it's a beautiful thing. It really, uh, you're one of the gang. I like that last exit ramp, which unfortunately I missed, but uh, I'm going to try to catch. I think I should prioritize those almost over doing anything else, because that's really such a cool concept, and doing it in real time. I mean, the idea of doing this or something like it in real time appeals to me. But the logistics of it, especially now that I am just working with one laptop and recording, there, as far as I can tell, they just don't, either they don't want us to, or there's limitations to how the sound cards and sound works on these machines. But getting a decent, balanced recording uh, trying to deal with somebody else who's remote or more than one person. I mean, it's nice that you can record on Zoom. I, I just said I went to look at the plans and it's it used to just be two plans, the free one or the pay one. And now there's other you're a professional and this and that. I do please. It's just mind boggling. But once again, the email address to participate in the next show or send comments or what have you is always kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And uh, with that, I am going to cut the driveline. Appreciate you listening, really. It, this is just so much fun, no matter what the future of this show is, because right around now, we have hit that mark where we have been doing this the lucky 13 years, so to speak. So if nothing else, uh, to, to, for next week, say you're listening to the Overnight Scape Central and tell me what you think about 13 years. Well, I've done 12 of them here on the Onsug uh, with so many people who have participated. I mean, Frank has this big list, which I don't think we need to continue to belabor. Amazing podcasters who've given their time and their thoughts, and that's great. But anyhow, till the next time we meet, set the controls for the heart of the fun.